What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Valley, coming at you without co-host Andy Bailey this time. We do have a special treat because tonight we're getting into a throwback podcast. Former co-co-host of the Hardwood Knox Podcast, Adam Frommel, is joining us. He is the co-founder of NBA Math. Dot com, the editor-in-chief there as well because he wears so many hats. He's also a national NBA featured columnist for Bleacher Report. And again, a Hardwood Knox alum who is who is coming back to his roots. I just feel like I, I have a missed opportunity by not having P. Diddy's coming home up on here. It's really strange to be in this position where I'm not doing the intro because that was always my role. You know, I had to get really into it, figure out how I was going to introduce the guests. So it's a, a serious role reversal here. Right, and now you're just like a guest too. Like, like yeah, I don't have any say in what we talk about. You and know. now you're like viewed as an expert, and like that's just questionable in itself. There's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um. Good to have you back, though. Um, it's good to be back. We are here to talk about the Nuggets. They had kind of a, a busy off season, I would say. Um. So the, I think that's where we should start. What were your just general impressions, right down to you know we're recording this a couple of days after Gary Harris got eighty four million dollars, and I think that was almost the perfect litmus test for the Nuggets offseason. Like, if you watch the Nuggets or if you watch, like, Gary Harris, you know that they're good and that he would be worth that money. But if you don't, then you were clearly unhappy with that deal. I think Gary Harris is just a good litmus test for basketball fans in general at this point. Like, if Him you and recognize... Chris Middleton, right? Those yeah, I mean, players coaches. like that, you know, that aren't going to post the big per-game stats but add a lot of value and could potentially add a lot of two-way value. But... I think the biggest thing is is the Paul Millsap signing, and not even because of, of what happened on the court. But, you know, this is a huge deal for Denver, just that they actually managed to sign a marquee free agent. Like, that's never happened. If you look throughout their entire history, they have never had an all-star who came aboard through free agency. So if Millsap somehow sneaks aboard in the, uh, in the brutal Western Conference, which probably isn't going to happen, but I guess it could— you know, that that would change. And, and just the fact that a player in contention for that kind of accolade actually agreed to come to Denver is a huge deal in and of itself. No, I would agree. And you could probably make the argument that because the way the market shook out with the crunch, no one really understood what these contracts were happening. It worked in their favor. But I fully believe they probably could have went out and signed George Hill, too, if they wanted to. And there's a scenario. You, you have Wilson Chandler entering free agency next summer player option. You can probably dump... Kenneth Reed. That's a guy that we're, you wouldn't have to include this heavy sweetener if you have to include one at all. And if you're not gonna, if you just work with Will Barton's cap hold, if you don't extend him there, there, and you you play the waiting game with Jokic, you know you could decline his team option and work with that cap hold. But they could have more cap space next summer too, even with Gary Harris on the books, and that well, then, that might appeal to bigger names who are on the market. And I think with Farid, it's it's easier for the Nuggets to throw in a sweetener just because of the way their roster is constructed. Like they don't need 
any more draft picks, whether they're in the first or second round. They have so many young power forwards, Trey Lyles, uh, Tyler Lydon, that they could you know, ship off with Fareed as a bit of a sweetener if any team is interested in those guys. Um, so, you know, you don't really have to worry about anything but bringing the roster together. So if you have to give up one of those assets, I don't, I'm not sure they're as valuable to the organization as they might be to others. They can't be because the Nuggets have 8 jillion power forwards. Yeah. It's, I'm, if you're going to – I'm not – I know it seems that a lot of Nuggets guys are are okay with this, with Juan Hernan Gomez playing three. Offensively, I don't necessarily see it as a problem. Defensively, I don't think you're going to get long bursts out of him, and that's where that's where I I would start to turn in toward the negative side of the spectrum of this team is just looking at their wing rotation. Like I, I, you could put Gary Harris at the three. You have Will Barton. You could throw him at the three, but like you kind of need. I, I, like I don't need, like you just don't have unless you think you're gonna get something from Malik Beasley this year. You just don't have that depth in those those spots or even necessarily the flexibility now to play with a small ball four like Wilson Chandler who should get minutes at the power forward, which now they don't have room to give. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think the long term vision from the management has been viewing Hernan Gomez as a small forward eventually, but he's always going to sacrifice something on defense. So whatever gains you make on offense, you're going to sacrifice elsewhere. And that might be okay because if you're just leaning into this, we're going to outscore everybody mentality. You know, like they, they had a positive net rating last year, despite being dead last in defensive rating after December 15th. So, you know, if you're, if you're going for that, it kind of limits your ceiling, but at least you're a fun, exciting team that's going to win games. So they, they do have to fix that eventually. I don't think that he's a sustainable starting solution at the three and the rest of the options are undersized or completely unproven like Beasley. So changes in the future, I'm not sure they're necessary quite yet. I just don't want to see circa 2014-2015 Hawks where Paul Millsap ends up lining up with small forward in small doses. Oh, uh, yeah, please no. I just, I don't, I don't want to see it. And even you look at... I, they might, they probably have that that tricycle of Mason Plumley, Paul Millsap, and Nikola Jokic. It's going to be really expensive this time next year, assuming they don't move anyone. Because if if they decide to give Nikola Jokic a new contract, but that's got to be the best passing trio in the front court, not in the NBA right now, but probably of the past decade, two decades ever. Like I, I don't even know. Part of me kind of wants to see all three of those guys together just sporadically. We, we just said that we didn't want to see Millsap at the three. I don't think it's a good idea, but that doesn't mean I don't want to see it. That's fair. Right? Like sometimes watching a train wreck is kind of fun, and it would be a very entertaining train wreck. But I also feel like we've kind of brushed aside how good Mason Plumley can be. You know, I don't think I've heard of him talked about it all this offseason. Between Jokic and Millsap and the Gary Harris extension, it feels like you know, the only reason he's been brought up is because of the cap situation and the contract that he signed. But he's a quality player. And, I mean, that's a lot of depth behind those guys. I think where things – and maybe that's where, like, everyone, the immediate reaction was like, well, what does this mean for Kevin Fareed? Uh, Kenneth Fareed, excuse me, almost. That just Mason Plumlee's a center, but Fareed's probably better off at, at center now, even though he's still going to give up and cough up points there defensively and now you're inserting Mason Plumley here who I was surprised he got as much money as he did that late in the offseason I just yeah, was it a situation yeah. where he was just like look just give me more money per year than Miles got and, and <laughs> then I'll sign and we'll just get this over with honestly as long as you get more than Marshall I mean that's the real goal here. I mean it you're right but like Miles Plumley's deal he's getting 12.5 <laughs> million per now like if you're Mason Plumley and you're looking at that and then it took you all these months to sign that was just that, again, I was just surprised he got as much money as he did. I personally 
don't like the idea of the Nuggets paying him, but it seemed, and I think Matt Moore at CBS pointed this out immediately after it happens, that they get, they did give up a first-round pick plus Nurkic to get him, and it was almost a situation where we have to keep him because that's what we gave up to get him in the first place. Yeah, and I think it's a little different of a situation than, than somebody like Alex Len or Nerlens Noel because this is a guy that actually does have proven value. Um, so you, you don't really have to, and, and I don't think he ever flirted with other teams either. It seemed like it was just internal discussions that, that dragged on for a little while. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as long as he can, can we call big men sixth men at this point? Like, it seems like they're always guards and wings, but if, if he's essentially going to fill, fill a sixth man role, you know, and come in and he can probably play with either Jokic or Millsap, uh, the Jokic Plumlee lineup would be really good at passing and, and way too big. Uh, but, you know, as long as he, he shows off the ability to play either at the four or the five with those guys, I mean, he's going to play enough minutes to justify that kind of salary. It just might be a little bit unpalatable to have that much money consolidated in one spot on the roster, especially when you factor in the 1,300 other power forwards and centers that you have to pay some semblance of money. Well, that's what I was going to say. You think that Mason Plumlee is going to just have sort of these minutes of, available to him just because – uh, the Plumlee-Jokic lineup last year was everything you said it was. They were great at passing, offensive rating of 109. Yeah. They coughed up 108.1 points per 100 possessions, though. Uh, like, you have those other young power forwards on the roster. You also have, you know, we have to assume Millsap and Jokic are both going to play more than 30 minutes a game. Obviously not all want with each other. I just, I don't know that I see, is he going to average 20 minutes a game with them? You really see them getting to that point? Like because then it depends you're on Fareed, doesn't it? Saying like, yeah. Oh, he's not, he's never gonna play basically. If they can move him, then Plumlee will. But I don't think you can risk Fareed getting so disgruntled by just never playing him. And he actually had a pretty decent season last year too, just in more abbreviated minutes. I mean, that might be that small burst guy, but he said on media day that he is a starter, which was well, it's such a shame because he's a perfect fit as that off the bench energy guy in the front court. You know, you let him go in and pull down defensive rebounds, bring the ball up the court, and just go all up and down the baseline and don't do anything else. And he has so much energy and so much explosiveness that no one's going to be able to contain him for those minutes. You're, you're looking at a productive player as long as he's willing to accept that role, but that seems to be the issue. Do you think, come trade deadline, comes to pass, is Kenneth Reed still on the Nuggets? I don't think so. I hope not. I, there's that's there's no way for him to start. I mean, unless they're going like super big ball, which doesn't make any sense. There, There is no path to the starting lineup for him. And he's made it pretty clear that he views himself as, as a starter. You know, this is a guy who we've seen sulk when you know, not everything's going his way. So I, I don't think that he's going to be a good fit under Michael Malone in the locker room. And that's that's a big deal for a team trying to make the leap from 40 wins to you know pushing for 50 and competing for a playoff spot in the West. That's not a presence that you want in the locker room. Right, and he he barely cleared 20 minutes per game last year, and now you you factor in Millsaps here. You just gave Plumlee money. Uh, you know you don't have to play Darrell Arthur. Okay, that's fine. But it, all signs point to yes, Juanhern and Gomez is going to play the three. But if he gets more minutes in the rotation, that's kind of less playing time up up for grabs. So it, I'm just it could can they even get him to 20? Like we talk about these small. I have no I, idea. How. I could understand him being pissed if it's a situation where he can't even get to 18 or 20 minutes a game on this roster. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's a really realistic possibility. Um, and the the other issue, and it's funny, be I like the Nuggets a lot, and Nikola Jokic obviously has a lot to do with it. 
but it seems like they just have so many issues. So we talk about their dearth of wings. We go into their surfeit of big men and the point guard position. I'm very, I'm a huge Jameer Nelson fan. Give me more Jameer Nelson. Uh, Jamal Murray, I think, made some very good decisions out of the pick and roll last year, especially later on in the season. By all means, I'm not, you know, like you, I'm a fan of positionless basketball, so it's not, oh, he's not a true point guard. But Emmanuel Moutier has shown you nothing, and because he's so rocky off the ball, his development it has become so much more complicated thanks to Jokic, who, who, who needs the ball and needs to have the ball because you had the best offense in the league for more than half the year. And I'm just wondering if they're going to have enough perimeter playmaking uh, for that kind of offensive number to hold. And perhaps it's not an issue because you don't, you don't, you didn't necessarily have a better point guard situation last year, but you did have Daniel Gallinari, uh, who's kind of an understated playmaker himself. Okay. So which of the guards do you want to start with? I, I mean, I meant it as more of a collective, like, because like the point guard situation is just, it's, it's not mind boggling to me, but I was very surprised that we didn't see them go harder after, you know, George Hill when he was loosely linked to them. Yeah, I would have loved to see that. And the point guard situation overall is just tough because we have no idea what to expect. And that's kind of why I want to focus on one player at a time because both Moutier and Murray are so intriguing and so totally different. So like Moutier, right, we've, we've seen in the preseason that he's working with slightly different shooting form. It seems much smoother. He seems much more comfortable delivering a consistent stroke. And yeah, it's preseason, but you know, it's, it's a stride. And that's something we haven't seen from him, which is important, especially because you have to remember the situation that he's in, right? So this isn't a polished prospect. He's still only 21 years old. He has two years of experience, but he was playing before he was ready. You know, a guy that went to China instead of college and then, and then came to the NBA as a really raw prospect. And, and when he was drafted, he was the kind of guy that was supposed to take a couple of years to develop, but because he was immediately thrust into the starting role, all of a sudden that that timeline becomes a little bit consolidated and forced. So I don't think it's entirely out of the question that he could be a late blooming option at, at the point, you know, it, as long as we keep that in mind, because his, his situation has become something that it wasn't intended to be. You know, if if you told the Nuggets three years ago when they drafted him, that he was going to take three years to become a starting point guard. You know, you, you, you have a guy that's a teenager that doesn't have much high-level experience. Do you think they, they say they're going to be disappointed with that? Because I don't. You know, this is this is kind of what the plan originally seemed like it was, but it just, it they tried to expedite it, and it didn't work. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's, it's always just weird, and sometimes it's a red flag where... If you look at the case of Kristaps Porzingis, where you see that his usage falls from his rookie to sophomore seasons when there was no real reason for it to, uh, Moutier is different because it's not a red flag that his usage usage fell, um, and he played fewer minutes and was averaging fewer shots, like in all this. But it, it is kind of like backtracking when you when you tried to double down on it essentially in the beginning or rush it. Like that's what makes it so bizarre. Now yeah. you add in. Millsap, who's also a guy, like a playmaker who should have the ball in his hands. Moutier seems like the the biggest element to his game that needs to improve. Like you talked about a different shooting form, but even like learning from Gary Harris, like how to cut off the ball just because that's where he's going to get a lot of his points or that's where he would be maybe most value offensively at this point. I mean, honestly, he, he basically needs to improve everywhere. That's you know, he wasn't He wasn't a competent defender. There are way too many turnovers because he puts his head down in traffic. Yeah, he couldn't finish around the rim. His shooting is broken. So I think as long as we start to see some strides, that's good news. And that's why, you know, you, you roll your eyes at, at preseason numbers, especially 
with only a four-game sample. But, like, he's taken three three triples a game. He's hit 41.7% of them. Like, that has to be a little bit encouraging, no matter how sustainable it is, just because we haven't, we haven't even seen that type of ability in even that abbreviated a stretch in the past. And granted, he's really struggled at the free throw line, which is, you know, not not encouraging whatsoever. But if, if he's going to become that that spot up cutting point guard, combo guard, whatever he may be, then that's what we need to see at this point. But doesn't he kind of I guess that was what, doesn't he kind of need to be that point guard now? Yeah, absolutely. And, and he has the physical tools to be it. He just has to like seems like everyone on this team has to accept the role. You know, uh, well, it's the Gary. I'm not calling again. This isn't the Gary Harris role, but to be in Gary Harris's position where you're this low usage offensive player, you're going to work hard off the ball to to get your points or to make those reads, but then try your butt off on the defensive end. And I'm by no means saying that Gary Harris is the best defender, but like he's not especially long, he's not especially tall, he's not especially big, but like he just works his ass off. That's that's a hard thing to find, and it's even harder to instill if you don't already have it. Exactly. I, I totally agree with that. Um, but yeah, again, we're talking about a 21 year old. If anyone That's is going to caveat. develop. Yeah. I mean, it has to be with him. I've maintained this since he was drafted. Really. There was the, the brief spell, the beginning of his rookie season where he seemed like he was going to be something special right away. But after that proved just a flash in the pan, like it's important to remember the situation that he found himself in. And, and that's why I keep using the caveat. Um, and the thing I didn't know, and I looked it up while you were talking before, he did shoot 38.9% from three after the All-Star break last year. Only on 18 attempts, 7 of 18, because he only played in 11 games. But <laughs> It counts for something. It went for me. Jamal Murray is obviously the more interesting player here. He's just very bouncy, and it, he's like under control chaos would be like a great way to describe him sometimes. And he looks like he could develop into a top tier playmaker, but he also look he has a very good chance of working off the ball because he's already done it a, a little bit there and succeeded. Do you think this is going to be that we've all, we already know that they're going to give him more looks as the primary ball handler, insofar as you could have one with Jokic on your team? Do you think this is a situation where he becomes the full time quote unquote point guard? by the end of the year or at some point of the year or no, you think it's going to be more of this combo role, like shifting between him, Moody, Nelson. We'll see Barton do it a little bit too. Maybe even Gary Harris. See, it's a tough question to answer because I'm not sure the nuggets have a point guard. Like by definition, somebody is going to have to play at the one and that's probably going to be Murray by mid season, if not sooner. But I don't think anyone's going to fill a traditional point guard role. Uh, you know, just from talking to people that, that are around the Nuggets all the time, they seem to think that he has a lot of hidden playmaking skills that are going to come to the forefront of his game. Um, but it, there's some inconsistency there. Uh, he hasn't shown the willingness to be a primary passer yet, and I'm not sure that's going to change anytime soon. And I, I'm not sure it needs to, just because you have those offensive hubs and Jokic and, and Paul Millsap, and you know everyone can handle the ball a little bit, especially when Will Barton's in the game, that you don't need him to fill that role. So it it's, I'm, I'm going to circle back to it being a tough question to answer just because this is a weird team. Do you worry about Murray's efficiency at all last season? Or do you just look at, he not was, really, he was actually, and it's funny that you, because he, his trademark, he's more known for his scoring than he would his passing, but he was probably one of the most economical pick and roll players for the nuggets last year. Cause he didn't turn the ball over a ton. Like a lot of their other primary ball carriers. And yet, 
his efficiency, just his overall shooting percentage, he he spent a good part of the year under forty percent from the floor. Do you ever watch those players where you know you you you're just so convinced that they could somehow slash like sixty, fifty, ninety, and it wouldn't surprise you? Right. Like you... from for me, that's Jamal Murray. Like I know that the numbers haven't been there yet, but just watching the way he gets his shots off and his form when he shoots them, like it would not surprise me if everything clicked and he just decided he was never going to miss again. And for whatever reason, I can't I can't explain why. And I'm I'm sure you have, you know, a player in the back of your mind who who fills a similar role. But f- for me, that's him. Like I I have no idea why, but I I just have this this hunch that he's going to develop into this super efficient scorer. I mean, he did shoot over 61% within three feet of the basket last year. His, his free throw percentage was very high, 88.3, and he shot over 90% from the foul line on the road. So uh, his you, you would assume his jumper would come, and it's hard to anyone that has like any sort of outside touch. If you're playing off of Paul Millsap and Nikola Jokic, like, it, it's really hard to shoot under league average for so long. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. And I think I don't have the splits in front of me, but I feel like his his numbers were a lot better after the All-Star break, too, because he got off to such a rough start where he just couldn't hit anything at the beginning of his rookie year that he was he was fighting an uphill battle throughout that entire season. Yeah, I mean, he his minutes increased by five per game. He was 12.1 points on 42.3 percent shooting. 34.1% 34.1% from three, almost 90% from the foul line. Uh, he was we under saw fo- a couple more spurts, too, where right. he just took over games. And he was under 40% leading into the All-Star break. So, yeah. I, And you have to factor in there's the rookie wall, and it, it, it took it took the Nuggets a while to kind of figure out who they were. They didn't start Nikola Jokic for good until December 15th, which was – and that was uh, – that seemed like a no-brainer move to everybody for the longest time. Like the it was the Nurkic-Jokic pairing – it seemed like it was beating this dead horse because no one really expected it to have these high returns. And then it was interesting that when it didn't work, it was Jokic, the one who at first took the step back. Yeah. Just the unassuming personality, but going back to, to Murray, it also wouldn't surprise me if part of the adjustment wasn't just him being a rookie and, and having to deal with the rigors of the NBA calendar, but also like it's a pretty stark change from going from primary ball handler at Kentucky where you can just, run past every defender to playing also off the ball not just with another guard handling it but with Jokic handling it and being expected to serve as a cutter like that's that's an entirely different scenario no I mean I I I would agree with everything that you said there and I don't there wasn't for for Murray and we found out later too that he played in all 82 games despite being injured yeah, the so, sports hernia. Right. So there's just no – there's not red flags there. It would just be if they're going to test him out more as that facilitator not named Jokic, like as the first guy that goes to, that's that's going to be some interesting ground for him to cover. And I'm, I'm, the other part I'm irrationally like, confident about him. I just – I can't help it. Yeah, I mean it's not – I don't think it's irrational to be confident in him. Um, but I just – I'm interested to see what he can do as outside of running like a basic pick and roll. Like I'm just interested to see how he develops from there. And I'm, I'm another part of me is like, why haven't they traded for Eric Bledsoe already? That seems oh, to me please. that's like one of the most obvious trades to me in the NBA. Please. It, what do you want them to offer for him at this point? Like, it, I think it would have been easier during the during the the beginning of the off season to make that happen. But it might be a little bit tougher now. Yeah, I I think you give him a first, Malik Beasley. 
and then filler, and that like should be enough to get it done. So, and I don't know if maybe your filler is Kenneth Fareed. I mean, I know that the Suns have enough bigs. Uh, you do have Wilson Chandler, but you can't really afford to give up any more wings. Beasley might even be pushing it just for that reason. And they have to get Jared Dudley back, too, just because he's a power forward. Well, then there you go. Then you get to give up Kenneth Fareed. <laughs> I think I think you include Moutier in that trade, too, though, just because you might as well. If you're if you're putting Eric Bledsoe, who's going to play 32 minutes a game, into that lineup, and you're also going to play Jamal Murray at both guard spots, what's the point of having Moutier? Maybe that maybe that lets you keep Beasley. I mean, I would throw Moutier in there regardless because you're right if you're getting. And I think I came up with a proposal later in the summer that included Moutier and maybe it was a first and and then just filler. I, I don't know if Malik Beasley was in that. I can't remember. But that the framework seems to be just there for this team. And there was rumors about it from ESPN.com's Chris Haynes leading into the draft. I was you can't say you're surprised it didn't get done because there's so many other teams involved in things like that. But that seems to me. Like, that's a good fit. Like, put Eric Bledsoe on this team, and now all of a sudden you have defense at the point guard position. It's just, it, I, I don't know, like that. They would be, I think you can make a case for them as a 45 or more win team right now, and if you put Bledsoe on them, like, they just, their stock skyrockets. Yeah, I mean, the biggest issue the team had last year was dribble penetration. No one could stop it, and then you're dealing with some weak rim protectors um, on the interior. So if if you get somebody that's a pretty hounding on-ball presence, then that's that's great news. I was going to ask you how high you thought the win total could rise with Bledsoe, Gary Harris, Wilson Chandler, Millsap, and Jokic, because that just sounds like a dream lineup. Like that's pretty easily a fifty-win team, I think, assuming everything, everyone stays healthy. I think it's there. I, you have you, you're close to having. You probably have, let's say, two plus defenders in that lineup, plus one to two even ones in Harris and Chandler, and Jokic. I mean, we should probably talk about him at some point. But Jokic playing with Millsap, maybe that helps his defense. He's already a good defensive rebounder. He was not good around the rim last year. But again, when you're when you're not necessarily, I don't want to say when you're not moving as much, but when you're not dealing w- with so much of a mess on on the half court side of the defensive ball, where no one seems to be in place, and you're in one way, and you have to rotate a bunch over the cover to the rim. Maybe his role just improves in that regard. Because even when you look at uh, and I, when I was writing about him the other day, like w- when you look at the 125 players who defended at least 200 shots around the basket, he ranked 109th in points allowed per shot. Like that's not yeah. great. And but I'm just thinking, I'm not saying he's not going to have to be mobile at all. But now you have this power forward in Millsap who's going to be able to chase around and switch, and that's not something you had last year. You know, the most encouraging thing I've seen with the Millsap addition to the defense is that they're actually allowed to gamble. So the Malone scheme last year was so disciplined, even though it didn't work well, it still tried to have discipline, um, That where they, they didn't try to jump passing lanes. They didn't gamble for steals. And I think they had uh, like the lowest or second lowest adjusted turnover rate for the opponents ever. Like this team never forced turnovers. And we're, we're already seeing that change a little bit because Millsap is so gifted at at jumping into lanes and recovering and and using active hands to to wreak a little bit of havoc and it's been a bit contagious. So if if all of a sudden this team is forcing turnovers, then you have so many transition threats and the offense gets even better. But most importantly, the defense isn't just a complete train wreck. I mean, if they even have let's say an 18th, 19th ranked defense, that's huge for them. Oh, absolutely. They're they're going to be a top five offense, right? Like, are we in agreement on that? 
Right. I would think because they led the NBA in offensive rating after December 15th. And even when you look at, like, just looking at when Jokic was on the floor, like, they not only did they have the league's best offensive rating, but they were so good on offense that they also posted what would have been a top three net rating. So yeah. you had any and can sort we give, of defensive improvement to that. Let's give Harris some credit, too, because we always say, like, December 15th is, is when Jokic re-entered the starting lineup, but it's also when Harris was healthy. And that was that was a huge factor, just because cutting is contagious as well. And and when you see guys cutting and getting the ball and getting easy scores, then everyone else wants to cut. So I think that was that was a big factor that gets overlooked a little bit because everyone loves Jokic, ourselves included. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, Jokic was just a monster, and he had the ball in his hands more, so you just naturally gravitate to him. Yeah, but it's hard to think of of even three offenses that are are guaranteed to be better than this this one. And there might be some adjustment period as as Millsap and Jokic adjust to each other. But I mean, the Warriors, the Rockets, maybe the Cavs, maybe the Thunder. Like, who yeah, else I, is I there that's mi- really going to challenge them? I think the Warriors are the only the definitive one. Yeah. Okay. The Hawks. John I'm Collins. In- John Collins is a monster. I'm also interested <laughs> to see what it'll be like if the Hawks decide to play fast, like really Look, fast. Look, if John, if John Collins dunks on every single possession, that is a 200 offensive rating, and the Nuggets are not going to beat that. <laughs> um, yeah, so John Collins is already the future Hall of Famer, better than Jokic. Best Wake Forest player play. ever. Woof. Yeah, I can't think of anyone else good who went there. Chris Paul, uh, he hasn't even made a Western Conference Finals. Like, he's obviously not good. Tim Duncan doesn't even score anymore. Yeah, Tim. <laughs> um, that was an unexpected tangent. I know, and it literally <laughs> just lost my train of thought or what I was going to go to. Um, oh, Jesus Christ. So, <laughs> all right, so Jokic. Back to Jokic. This is why I had to leave the podcast. I, I appreciate the tangents, but that one was disarming. <laughs> I didn't expect you to say he's the best person that went to Wake Forest ever. Well, so I actually said that on Twitter as a joke after a summer league game and John Collins retweeted it. And because of that, I had way too many people trying to explain to me who Tim Duncan was. And like, obviously, I know that Tim Duncan went to Wake Forest and was like fairly good at the whole basketball thing. But that was one of the funniest Twitter days I've ever had, just because it was a, a steady stream of people being like, um, Tim Duncan, ever heard of Tim Duncan? Like just nonstop. I, it's funny when they just try and like ex, uh, when people try and explain what is clearly obvious, or, or people who can't detect sarcasm on Twitter. Yeah, I I find it hysterical that John Collins retweeted that though. Oh, it's great! It makes me like him that much more. There's going to be some locker room fissures now. <laughs> uh, well, I guess not because he doesn't have to worry about being in the locker room with Tim Duncan. So whatever there. Um, Jokic has been kind of divisive this summer though. Uh, because people on Twitter, when they like to debate spots where these players rank in the NBA, I think SI.com ranked Jokic number 25 uh, in their overall top player ranking. NBA math, uh, we won't spoil where he ranks overall unless you want to, but he ended up being pretty highly there. I'm Let's just say it's better than that. Right. So I don't I'm, think we want to give it away yet. Um, I am working on one for Bleacher Report as well that you have also helped on, and he also ended up in the top 25 there i believe he might at worst he was top 30 but i'm pretty sure he was top 25 again i'm wondering i wouldn't have let you put him below 25 um i mean that's fair i would have flown to new york and stopped you 
Well, you did. I mean, you got you you, you got on me about Clay Thompson a little bit. If we're just going to start airing out dirty laundry, you seem to really hate Clay Thompson. You were like he shouldn't even be in the top one hundred. Oh, not even the top two hundred. <laughs> um, but why is so Jokic? Why why <laughs> has he become this divisive figure? And I feel like it goes. It has to go a little bit beyond the fact like people are going to argue about like smaller samples, but it, it just seems to go beyond that. Is it because everyone's go-to support for Jokic is the advanced numbers? I, I just don't I don't understand like what is the problem with saying that Jokic is a top twenty-five NBA player? I think there are two, three issues. The one you mentioned with the sample size, and it's always tough to insert people into that conversation when they haven't been there before. We've seen it. You know, with Kobe Bryant before and, and Carmelo Anthony now, where people are so resistant to dropping stars out of that. And there are only a finite number of spots. The second thing is how he looks. You know, he, he has a little bit of baby fat. He doesn't look the part of an NBA star because, he you know, he sort of trudges up the court sometimes. He, he doesn't look like he's going to jump through the roof and, and dunk on every possession. I think that that plays a, a big part in it. And the third is I think that us us number of people can sometimes be a little bit obnoxious. You know, we we want to ram down. We want to ram the numbers down people's throats because, you know, numbers numbers tell accurate stories, and you know they can they can pick up things that the eye test, while very valuable, can miss. And I, I don't think that the numbers communities and the eye test communities, for lack of a better word, always do a good job in in sharing their viewpoints without trying to denigrate the other. And because Jokic has has become like the poster boy for, you know, the, the numbers matter a lot in, in today's NBA, then there's been even more resistance to that. And and maybe we're a little to blame, too, just having him in, in the banner head on, on the site when we launched right alongside Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Like, you know, I don't I don't I doubt that had much of an impact, but I, I think that that kind of thing where we're we're so quick to to throw him in with other legends because the numbers say so, it, it doesn't help the case. But the whole argument is is so stupid, and we've touched on this before, because Jokic has the numbers, but he also passes the eye test with flying colors. Like, if you, if you take the time to watch the Nuggets, and this might be a fourth point, is that they weren't on national TV ever last year. That's I mean, what, what, two or three games? So no one's seeing him. No one's seeing him play except for highlight reels that they want to watch on YouTube or or quick clips on on Twitter. So there isn't that exposure. Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint one factor. Well, it's a bunch of them, and it, the eye test one is interesting because I don't know how you watch Jokic and would argue against him. I I don't know that you watch somebody and go, oh, they're a top twenty five NBA player. But I don't know if someone's going to come up to you and say that Jokic is a star, deserves to be in the all-star conversation. He is a top 25 NBA player, and you've actually watched him. Like, the Nuggets, they move completely differently with him on the floor. Like, I know he's on the bigger side, but, like, the Nuggets' pace was actually slightly faster with him on the court. And that's in part because his head is just always up, and he'll throw you a touchdown pass, or he's going to end possessions before he even gets to midcourt, basically. That's fine. Like, it's just, I, I, I still... I, I get what you're saying. I never really considered that, that, yeah, maybe every, each side can be super condescending to the other, and there is a middle Always. ground to it. Like, the eye test and numbers, they combine to give you more information, and you should never And you should never more. use one without the other. Right. Uh, but you want, like, if we're moving, looking aside from numbers, because if you look at the catch-all metrics, 
like top twenty five under rates Jokic. If we're just looking, yeah, at I mean those. we don't have to use numbers to right. talk about him. So, so it, but I'm just saying, like the catch all metrics rated him last year as a top ten player. Basically, look at TPA, look at RPM, look at PER, look at value over replacement. You could look at whatever, and and most of the time he's going to average out to be a top ten player. But if you just you just watch him, like it. I, the passes he makes, like the reads he makes on offense, he's very good with the ball in his hands, even when it's on the floor. Like I just, I, I, I'm baffled why people are so reluctant to. Is it just because they're, like, is it just because Carl Anthony Towns exists, or because Kristaps Porzingis came onto the scene in those rookie seasons? Like, let's get this out of the way. Let's go back to 2015, 2016. Nikola Jokic was better than Kristaps Porzingis, and it just oh, seems he was, like he was better than Towns too. Okay, um, I, but an argument that I would listen to. See what to, I'm doing there? Right. Yeah. But just like you don't really – and maybe that comes back to the exposure point, but it just – it's it's not even just a last season thing. It seems like it's been since he really started coming on, there's been this reluctance to accept him into the upper echelon of the league from the fans or like the, some of the pun- – like I don't – I just don't understand it. To clarify, I don't actually think that he was better than, than Towns when they were each rookies. You probably also think Kyrie Irving is a top five NBA player top three uh but yeah i mean it, it's it's so baffling to me the whole the whole Jokic thing and I, like, like we've said if you watch him it's so easy to see it and it's not even just the passing you know you you never see him miss shots from six feet away because his touch is way too good and i think he led the league in that in that zone and, and field goal percentage if we're going to use numbers again but Everything backs it up, and I also I wonder if it's it's partially because he was a second round pick, you know, because the pedigree isn't there. We always it's it's easier to maintain a reputation than it is to change it, right? That's why top picks are always going to get more chances. Um, it's why it's hard to break into that class of stars. And I think at this point we've touched on what like six or seven reasons, and maybe not one explains it but i'm not sure there's another player out there where all of those factors combine together and it might be why he's kind of become the poster boy for this this chasm between the two sides of of a spectrum that that shouldn't even be a spectrum yeah that's completely fair and i don't even know if people just miscast him as well what does he do aside from having these like voodoo this voodoo vision but he just he's super accurate on the offensive i mean he shot over 60% between 3 and 10 feet of the basket, which it, part of that is, like, no one shoots over 60% between 3 feet and 10 feet of the basket, like, when you're getting into that 10-foot range. It's just, he's so accurate on the offensive end. He's just so smart. I agree that there's problems on defense, but he's a he's a pretty good defensive rebounder, and how quickly the Nuggets offense gets set after he grabs a defensive rebound, it's it offsets it. He's so good on offense that it almost doesn't matter how much he takes away on defense because that that gap is never going to shrink. Like the defense is the defensive deficits are never going to catch up to the offensive gains with him. And his his positional defense isn't really that atrocious either. Like he's in a lot of trouble if you get him in an isolation situation or if you ask him to be the last line of defense, but as a team defender, he's not really that bad. I I think Millsap's going to make a great deal where we don't have to see him be responsible for making these rotations as much. And it it does, though, given how – I'm not even sure what the word would be. I think calling him iffy on the defensive end would be fair. Sure, it, that's it, fine. It's it's going to be an, an interesting barometer or referendum, excuse me, on 
can you still, when we see in the league, go smaller and just lean into all these wings? Or, you know, when they're talking about bigs, like it almost seems like Millsap is now the limit. Uh, can you still build around these guys who are closer to plotters than not? Because he's he's not going to give you the defensive switchability. Like, there, if you go up against the Warriors, like, there's a good chance there are going to be points. If the death lineup rolls out, like, can you justify keeping him on the floor for protracted stretches against a squad like that. And the Nuggets, if they want to get to that level, it is something they're going to have to worry about because Millsap, he looks like he'd be, you know, a, a great small ball five. And, like, they're not going to be able to use – they don't they, one, they shouldn't because they have Jokic and they have a zillion power fo- forwards too. But you're not really going to – are you going to test out in those situations if teams go really small against you with Millsap at the five or are you just going to try and kill them with your size and just trust in the fact that, hey, Jokic has eyes in the back of his head – and it doesn't matter what he might take away on the defensive end. When your offense is that good, yeah. it almost doesn't matter as much. And I think we, we talked last season about which which teams the Warriors might not want to face as the eight seed in the West because a couple teams were still in contention for that. And I, I maintain that that was the Nuggets because they they might be quite poor on defense, but the Warriors are already maximizing their possessions for the most part. And the best way to beat them might be having enough offensive firepower to at least keep up. Right. Um, and I think, I, and I, I guess I've stepped on this point like six times, just having Millsap there changes the cosmetics of your defense to where at the very least, Jokic isn't going to have to close out on these spot-up guys as much. And if he is, something's wrong. If like something's gone terribly wrong, if that's what's happening. So that's going to allow him to be around the paint a little bit more. Um, and if his rim protect, if he becomes a plus or even rim protector, like that's someone I, you can call, like you're not going to call him a two way player, but like his value just skyrockets just because if you're not a, a liability or close to a liability on the defensive end, and you're doing all this on the offensive end, like you're one hell of a transcendent player. Yeah, and and speaking of Millsap, I think that he he kind of falls into that Jokic category where he might be a little bit undersold by by people who are relying solely on on watching games because the Hawks were never on TV in the last couple of years. Um, you know, dating back to, they, they were on it a lot in 2014-15, but since then it's been a pretty steady decline. And how many people realize that he's probably been one of the 10 best defensive players for the last couple of years? I don't even know if you could count those people on one hand. I And, you know, yeah. and I'll even say, and this might be proof, like I don't, and granted I was a lot younger then, but like I don't remember him being like this on defense when he was in Utah. And he's all of a sudden just this, and I have this at the ready because I was using it in something I was writing. No one in the league last year guarded as many pick-and-roll ball handlers and pick-and-roll roll men as him. So to have someone who's going to switch in that type of role. And then during his time with the Hawks, he averaged 17 points, three uh, excuse me, only one other player cleared 17 points, three assists, one steal, one block per game. and Or two of them, excuse me, it was DeMarcus Cousins and Kevin Durant. Like that's the company this guy has put himself in routinely. Like, we're, we're talking about a four-year span now where he's just been a dominant player. I feel like you're just trying to make me feel bad that I didn't bring any fancy stats to the I, podcast. I have these at the ready because I was, again, I was knee-deep in NBA uh, ranking stuff. And Millsap, first of all, you know I have a soft spot for Millsap anyway. Did, so. did you know that Millsap is the best player in the NBA whose first name is Paul and last name is Millsap? I didn't know that. That's a pretty big fun fact. Yeah. Do you think— it, And the worst. Do you think there's going to be any, like, extended, like, learning curve between him and Jokic, or is this just going to fit? 
it's it's definitely going to require a little bit of uh, a, a couple a couple uh, speed bumps that they're going to have to get by, just because they both like to operate from the same area on offense. You know, you're you're going to be asking Millsap to to protect the interior a little bit more, which forces Jokic into a different defensive role. Like they're they're definitely going to have to adjust to each other, and we've already seen it a little bit in the preseason where they're they're very much trying to feel each other out, and and Jokic doesn't look quite comfortable with the role. But I mean, that's that's pretty natural. Like, is they're both so talented and so versatile on offense that. I don't think there should be concerns about them eventually figuring it out. But, you know, there, there might the, the learning curve might be a little bit steeper than we immediately imagined, because as soon as that signing happened, uh, it, it felt like every single basketball writer in the world was rushing to write the story. Like these two guys are a perfect fit next to each other. Like if you could design a player to play power forward next to Jokic in a lab, it would probably look a lot like Millsap. Yeah, I I'd agree, and I can't – most of my concern, concerns would stem from, I don't know – Millsap's going to be the one, I would assume, that has to make more of the offensive sacrifices, and his spot-up shooting wasn't terrific during his last couple of years with the Hawks, and it, he wasn't used as this volume cutter. I imagine that he will be a very efficient cutter if he has to do it in mass, uh, and the spot-up shooting, I tend to – or just his shooting in general because his three-point splits weren't great – that seemed to have more to do with just the Hawks. They weren't surrounded by all these other floor spacers, and the Nuggets are going to have, even with their dearth of, of wing guys, you're going to just have more outside threats and more cutting threats by default. So maybe that just brings it up, and, and that would be my only pause there. And, and that's something, though, that even if you factor it in and say that it will be an issue, we're not here. If, if I bring you back on in midway through December, we're not here talking about it. No. The one thing I'm sad about with Millsap is that because this team is going to prioritize quick ball movement and a lot of cutting, we're not going to see the pump fake as often as we did in Atlanta. And that was such a deadly and fun weapon. You know, everyone knew it was coming and he still managed to pull it off on every possession. But I I don't think that that is going to be used with nearly the same frequency in this new system, just because it's kind of antithetical to what they're trying to do. Do you think he gets time, though? like away from Jokic, maybe in bench heavy units. Yeah. I, I think when he's, when he's running center in small ball lineups and that's when oh, you he think, can control the ball a little bit more. I don't, I feel like I don't know where, if they do all for it, as I stutter all for it, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out how they'll find time for small ball five. I thought, you know, him as a power forward, like you bring in Plumley, and then he's basically still the primary offensive option though. I think there are, there are five to 10 minutes a game where that can happen especially because you do have these power forwards you want to get on the court. And, and one of the ways that you can do that is by shifting Millsap up and playing one of them with him. I it, It's not going to be like a death lineup. It's going to be an oversized small ball lineup. I'm not really sure. How, how do we define small ball these days? It's, well, when I was – so I wrote an article that you helped me with. I remember this one, yeah. With the death squads. And I think in certain situations, you know, the Golden State death lineup is the model – to where there isn't really a, I mean, Kevin Durant's like seven foot five, even though he says he's six foot nine. But there's not a real traditional big on the floor. But I don't think it needs to be about inches or about position as much as it is. You know, Miles Turner's a perfect example in Indiana. Like there should not be a knockoff death squad unit in Indiana that doesn't include Miles Turner because he's an okay switcher already. Sure. Jokic, Jokic is a little bit different because you you probably do want to pull him off in those situations, but only because you have Millsap, who is this expert uh, hyper-switcher. But death lineup is kind of different than small ball, right? So when, when yeah. I think death lineup, it's, it's the ball-sharing system where everyone can switch on every screen. When I think small ball, I guess my definition might be 
you know, two or three guys playing up above their traditional position. So if you're putting Wilson Chandler at the four and Millsap at the five and Barton at the three, then that's going to qualify to me. Yeah, and those terms, that term now might even be archaic if we think about it because four out and five out might just be better descriptors at this point because when you sure. run when you run out these lineups, the goal is kind of to just diversify your offense anyway. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, So this team last year uh, misses the playoffs, wasn't surprised. No one, you know, was really surprised by that. So they were, close, though. They were, yeah, they were in that race, but they win forty games. Everyone expects them to be better, and and rightly so. What do you think their ceiling is? Best case scenario, you know, we're not assuming anything crazy like, oh, they trade for LeBron. But what is this team's ever? You know, what's this team's ceiling leading into next year? And the West is a bloodbath, which is why these ceiling floor questions are kind of just basic, but they're really important in the Western Conference. All right, so they trade for Eric Bledsoe. Jamal Murray is in the 50-40-90 club. Jokic is the best player in the league. Is this too optimistic? No, that sounds – I mean, I, I actually for your ceiling, not for your actual prediction. Though. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that if they they make some moves during the season and the, the many young players start to break out, you know, like we touched on, we, we expect bigger things from Murray. Uh, Moutier could show us enough that he is a, he is a rotation player. Millsap and Jokic work like – Maybe they're they're above fifty wins, trying to get to fifty five by the end of the season. Worst, what would be their actually? To quote on you, I would actually agree with your ceiling. I would. This team seems like I don't know. You wouldn't pencil them in for fifty plus wins, but this team seem if everything breaks right, they they could easily be a fifty one win. Like you just look at that front court. I'm sorry, Jokic and Millsap. Yep. Like it's just. Yep. Uh, and let's not forget those are two top twenty five players or close to it. Millsap might be a little bit on the outskirts. I think he was right there though. when I did like the BR rankings that have yet to drop. So just, and another fringed 50 guy with Gary Harris. Uh, no, he's not a fringe 50 guy. He's a top 50 player. All right. That's just, I don't know where we had him in NBA math, but I am, I'm all bored the Gary. Harris. And this was, I was, I, I can spoil that ranking. I think he's far enough down. We can do that. If I look it up real fast. Oh, he was, he was outside the top 50. No, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly if he where was, he was. We need to fire. I, I don't have the entire crystal basketball rankings memorized. That's weird because there's I'm, only like I'm shirking my duties. Yeah. Gary Harris Gary. came number 46 for me. And he was the seventh best shooting guard, which caused a little bit of a ruckus. Gary Harris record. is number 49 for us. He's a top 50. I mean, you have three top 50 players. You're in business. Yeah. But I think the floor is still a little lower than people might think because losing Gallinari hurts. You're shifting a lot of what you're doing the defense could still be atrocious and you have very questionable play at point guard so I, I think this team is guaranteed to improve but if not a lot of things go right it might not be that shocking if they're like exactly 500 in which case they if you're 500 you're out of the playoffs in the west yeah. this year yeah i mean and there are what 11 teams really competing for those eight spots like it's in no way inconceivable that the nuggets could miss the playoffs i don't think they will I'm sure we're going to realistic predictions next, but it's there. There's a scenario in which they don't, and it's not. Yeah, the odds would not be that far. Yeah, who against. are you most worried about there? Because we can. So the Warriors, Spurs, Rockets, um, and Thunder are in. Like th- those are your four teams right there. And then it well, seems Spurs, like. Rockets. Okay, so that's that's four. Uh, I don't know if you have a get. I wouldn't have a necessarily lock after that. Like I like the Jazz to get in, but if you look at the Jazz. The Clippers, the Grizzlies, the Blazers, the Nuggets, and the Pelicans. Well, I genuinely think of the Wolves as a lock. Well, that's funny because I don't. 
Yeah, but you asked me. All right. <laughs> who? Are you, all right. So if you're. All right. So let's say you're gonna pencil in the wolves there, which I think is a mistake. But so you're gonna pencil in the wolves. Who are you? Most... It's not that. It's not that I have the wolves at five. It's that I don't think the wolves will drop below eight. I mean, that's. Do you have? So do you have anyone else that you would put in the locks category above the no. Nuggets, though? So you have those five teams. I, is there anyone who worries you most out of what's remaining? Is it just the Jazz and the Clippers, um, and you're not too wor- worried about the Grizzlies, Blazers, or Pelicans? Yeah, I don't. I don't really believe in in the Grizzlies, the Blazers, or the, or the Pelicans. The the Blazers would be the one that worries me the most because I do think that the Nurkic breakout is legitimate. Do you? But I I would have yeah I would have Denver and Minnesota in in five and six and then. Utah in seven, and uh, I'm going to vacillate between the Clippers and the Blazers for that eighth spot. Uh, yeah, I mean, that seems fair. So what would your – so your actual – you think they're going to end up somewhere like five, six, the Nuggets, and how many wins? I think 48 is is the realistic number. You know, any an eight-game improvement from last year enough that kind of like the Wolves, I, I think of them as like is fringe lock a thing? <laughs> like – not in too much. Nice, you're, like, you're hedging <laughs> on what's supposed to be a surefire phrase. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, maybe you just is what you just did. You definitely, definitely, maybe, maybe probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think that that those two teams, they're like, they're so close to earning lock status in my mind, but they're not quite there yet. So I guess that by definition, they're not locks. But I think that they're, I think they're pretty clearly ahead of the pack. Yeah, I think the Nuggets. I think I would be honestly surprised if the Nuggets aren't in the playoffs. I don't necessarily yep. know what that means because it seems to me like those final four spots in the West could be mostly interchangeable. And I, I like you said, I'm gonna go back and forth with the Clippers all year. Uh, the Jazz, I think, could be a lot better than everyone expects if they get just enough shot creation. Uh, I'm not high on the Timberwolves at all, but I think you know you get Jimmy Butler, Jeff Teague in the same offseason, and you have Carl Anthony Towns and Wiggins. You have to put them in the combo, so that'll be an interesting race to watch unfold. But I would be shocked. My my actual prediction is the the Nuggets. I think 48 is a good number, but I would just more so if we move away from the win total. I would be genuinely floored if they're not in the postseason next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when when we're when we're talking about a floor, like. I don't think that they're going to to hit that floor. You just have to say it exists. Is Jokic the final question? Is Jokic going to get All NBA, All Star, both? How many MVP votes? I don't think he's going to get any of them. You don't think he's going to make the All Star game? I don't. I think he should, but that's a different question. I mean, if if you look at at how many big men are are in the picture, like, is he really going to get votes from coaches? Over Marcus Saul and Demarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis and Carl Anthony Towns. Yeah, that's fair. I, I don't think he's going to. Well, this is a depressing way to end the podcast. I'm just going to say <laughs> yeah. that Nicole Jokic makes an appearance in the All Star game. He's he's an All Star in our hearts, and that's really what matters. Nicole Jokic is an All Star, All NBA, and MVP candidate. In if our if he's listening to this podcast, we can have him on for a special guest appearance during the All Star game that he's not at. I'm going to start shouting out Nicole Jokic instead of Ben Udre at the end, so that we can kind of just <laughs> monopolize that part of what Andy normally does. Fair enough. And that. As, seems as good a point as any to end this Nuggets podcast. I want to thank Adam for coming back home for a minute. It was it was a lot of fun. It, I don't. It, it wasn't even awkward. It's like I'm not even mad at you anymore. We're talking again. Well, you're at least pretending not to be. Yeah, we're like we're really good at like. Dan has that. a Dan has a dartboard and he has a bunch of pictures of me 
all around where the triple spaces are. They're just really tiny pictures, and he aims at those. There's also voodoo dolls. I've turned through a lot of Adam Frommel voodoo dolls. That explains so much. Um, but Adam, he's the again the co-founder of NBA Math, editor in chief as well. He's also a national NBA featured columnist at Bleacher Report. If you want to talk to him on Twitter about his piping hot takes of on the Nuggets or anything else NBA, you can follow him at Frommel09. That's F R O M A L zero nine you can follow me on twitter at dan favale that's f-a-v-a-l-e you can follow andy at andrew d bailey spelled exactly like it sounds please follow the nba math twitter account at nba underscore math you can find us hardwood knox at hardwood knox please leave us a review on itunes rate us definitely subscribe to us if you're going to listen to us anyway it doesn't even need to be a kind review we just want to know that you're listening and that you that we know that you know we suck so all that good stuff we will not be shouting out beno udre but shout out nikola Jokic, 2018 nba all-star and shout out john collins sugar ray leonard roberto duran marvelous marvin Hagler, and thomas hearns Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.